meeting is being recorded. Well, here we go. Yeah, there's her voice, everybody. After some technical difficulties that you in the passive listening audience will never know of, Michael and I and our guest, who we will describe in just a little bit, will be uh, are happy to be here with you on the Regeneration Podcast. Hit it, Michael. What's going on, brother? Well, two things are going on. One thing that's going on is nobody guessed last week's name that tune, which I actually didn't sing, but I gave the lyrics. Maybe Adam can tell. Welcome back, my friend. Yeah, I don't know. It never ends. I do. I do now because I looked it up. Can I say it? But I, I, I had gotten. I like Kilroy, Mike. I mean, get you, get in. Okay. Yeah. No, I got. Thank you. I had gotten the song in my head, and I could sing the lyrics, but I had to look up the band Emerson, okay. Lake, and Palmer. That's right. And yeah, yeah. Smart Evil Nine. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Taking taking this back a little pro, prog rock, but the other thing. So I want to do a, a a name that tune for this week because it's this week in the history of American politics. Let's see if you guys can, I know you can, I know you know the riff, right? One of the angriest riffs ever. Can you it's name it? angry. I can't name it, no. Adam. I can't name it either. You got I'm it. very bad at this. <laughs> One more time for an our, our... But, oh, here it is, like uh, dun, 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 Ohio, right? That's it. Right, yeah, right, right, right. Ohio <laughs> by Russell, Nash, and Young with Neil Young. I can, I can get into each one, rhythm. but I can't just like flesh it out. All right. But, <laughs> now the reason being, right? Because tw- fifty-three years ago, it all went you know, down. I think it's next Thursday. Was when the Kent State shootings would, would happen. Oh, yeah. And okay. I've been teaching college for, well, I've been teaching young people for th- over 30 years, and I teach in college for 20. And so often I would show that video. There's a really great video <laughs> I cannot watch without weeping to students. And you see, like, the, the, the high school graduation pictures of the kids they shot, right? And I would tell students that. You know, this hasn't happened, I don't think, since, but don't think it can happen again, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. you know, especially over the, it's even ramped up over the last few years, I would say that the, we, you know, like the, <laughs> the, the mask is off. <laughs> right? Thomas Hobbes worried about worms and the Leviathan, and it seems like there's fewer and fewer worms to worry about, you know? Yeah. Uh, Thomas Hobbes, rest mm. in peace, my friend, because the uh, sun seems to be going down, which is a sad, angry segue, but um, to something we'll be talking <laughs> about today. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, I, yeah, well, Michael, you're going to say something? Oh, I, yeah. I just have to say, Ad, Adam, reading Adam's <laughs> essays has got me thinking about it even more. I, I was thinking about this. You know, I don't know how old you were in 1970, Mike, but I imagine you were four or five. I was two. You were two, and I was... It was the day after my eighth birthday, and I, I remember watching that on television and just you know yeah, yeah. <laughs> talk about you know. So I watched that within a couple of years. I watched the the assassination of Bobby Kennedy, the assassination of Martin Luther King, and this. I mean, my God, I think my whole generation must have grown up with some form of PTSD from watching this stuff. Right, right, right. You know, and another PTSD, like if you were a, 
Some people would claim it was there if you saw the towers fall down. Uh, a theme that's come up countless times on our podcast is the, a form of PTSD from the notorious three years, the three years of COVID, which is going to relate not tangentially, but directly to our guest. Mm-hmm. Um, Adam Smith, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read, you know, to get the conversation going, then in your first kind of intro, I want you to describe your background. You know, there's, you teach at the University of Dubuque, Iowa, political philosophy. I found your writings mm-hmm. through Front Porch. They appeared. And again, I was telling him before we came on air, as soon as he appeared, he wrote with such calm, calm mastery on current events that I thought he had been writing there for a long time or something. You know, you entered a world and you already had more knowledge than I did. And I feel like I've been in that world a long time. And there's an important part of our pre-conversation, which Michael doesn't know, that's fascinating to me. But um, I'm going to, you know, just almost as an insipid, which is the word for those Ivan Illich readers, if they read the In the Vineyard of the Text, those first lines that constitute a papal encyclical that almost are like a musical register. And this is a famous quote from Alistair McIntyre that our guest Adam Smith uses uh, in a writing called Medicine After Virtue. A crucial turning point, says McIntyre, in that earlier history occurred when men and women of goodwill turned aside from the task of shoring up the Roman Imperium and ceased to identify the continuation of civility and moral community, I mean moral community, with the maintenance of that Imperium. But they set themselves to achieve instead, often not recognizing fully what they were doing, was the construction of local forms of community within which civility and the intellectual and moral life can be sustained through the new dark ages, which are already upon us. Now, Adam, um, again, it is a famous quote. It describes something that I don't wanna claim to myself as a veteran or anything, but uh, that I've been kind of thinking about for a long time and kind of contributing. But Michael, I think you'll find this interesting. You know, I said, Adam, Adam came on the scenes. He's gonna tell us that he was, he was a very different person before COVID. And he would say he became radicalized. Michael, you know, in a minute, I'd like you to describe yourself, but uh, I'm gonna say, I didn't like necessarily see it coming, but it was all a part of a tapestry, I guess I had seen. Tell us Adam Smith about your background and about Mm -hmm. this radicalization, this radicalization. Hmm. Yes, radicalization, it's a good word for these days. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Everybody's being radicalized in one direction or the other, I suppose. Um, you know, I, it's probably good to start with my background, actually, because this might be a little self-serving, but I, I mean, I was saying to you, Mike, before that it's not so much that uh, COVID happened and I just changed my mind about everything. It felt more like uh, I had kind of brushed off some layers that had accreted over the years mm-hmm. and remembered some earlier convictions that had never really, you know, I had never quite applied them to political circumstances in the way that COVID really forced me to. So, I mean, my background, uh, I grew up, uh, I grew up on a small farm in Indiana, went to a fundamentalist Baptist church. Uh, I uh, went to an evangelical college, Olivet Nazarene in Illinois. I did my master's degree at the Institute for Christian Studies in Toronto. Um, and so I have a pretty deep background, or I guess a trajectory that led me into a pretty deep background in, I guess, an intellectual academic kind of Christian faith. Um, And after my master's degree, I got married and we just traveled around and had lots of fun adventures for six or seven years uh, before I went back for my PhD, which was from Brandeis. 
Um, and that took another, whatever, six years. And I guess uh, <clears throat> over the course of that time between finishing my time at the Institute for Christian Studies and finishing my PhD at Brandeis, I mean, an extremely, you know, left-wing school, um, kind of just, I guess, became, I guess, what you might call a standard variety liberal person in terms of politics. Uh, I mean, I always had reservations about, you know, the, the campus hijinks that Brandeis is kind of famous for and the woke stuff uh -huh. and so on and so uh -huh. forth. But, um, but you know, like it, it was tough uh, in the Trump years, you, you picked a side and, you know, you felt like, well, the other side is. So I didn't really resist that way of thinking too much. Mm -hmm. So um, I guess when COVID came along, uh, it it touched on some of the most basic kind of almost uh, beyond dispute sort of convictions about uh, limits beyond which we should not go to ensure security and safety, right. for example. And uh, it also just kind of showed me this incredible latent tendency for conformity and groupthink and uh, aggression at anybody who mm -hmm. didn't want to uh, necessarily go along right away with it. And I'll also say, um, you know, personal circumstances. I mean, COVID is very much about medicine, medical control. And right. my wife has uh, multiple sclerosis. So we have lots and lots of experience with, you know, the hospital system. And this mm -hmm. probably also seated us with some, uh, some suspicions of uh, the, the way mainstream institutions work. So it wasn't totally out of the blue uh, and I can kind of explain it to myself, but it was very unexpected. I mean, for both of us, my wife and I, we, we look back and think, man, we were just very different people in terms of what we thought about what was happening in the world uh, three years ago or, or whenever, when, whenever this started. Mm -hmm. So, um, so I, I mean, I'd say my background is actually really relevant to the radicalization that you're that you're talking about. And I was saying to you earlier, I, I know lots of people who had a similar trajectory and surprised themselves with the way that they reacted uh, to the pandemic. And um, I, it's funny when you look around and you can't really identify a, a good pattern with, uh, in terms of who reacted in what I would call the right way and who went along with the, the thinking. Um, people from all kinds of different political backgrounds. And it makes me wonder like, what is it in their, in their core constitution that kind of led them, led them that way. But I still don't have a very good answer for that. You said you have yeah, a certain a self understanding of self that led to your own radicalization. Say a little bit about Well, that. I mean, I don't know if I said self, I guess like, um, you know, uh, I don't know, I guess here's, here's an example. I remember uh, when I was younger, um, not too much younger, I guess I was still kind of an adult, but um, my family took a trip to, to Disney World, and uh, I remember like, oh, you had to give your fingerprint when you go to Disney World, and mm. the rest of my family was like, oh yeah, who cares? And I, I almost didn't want to go in because this is, okay. this yeah, is ridiculous, that. you know. So little little uh -huh. moments like that, right? That I've always oh, yeah, kind yeah. of reacted to any yeah. kind of surveillance. I mean, I could think of other examples. 
I traveled abroad and, you know, having to go through metal detectors everywhere to, you know, stop the terrorists or something. And I just oh, yeah. thought, this is not, this is not a way to live. No way. <laughs> great. This so, is great. Michael, before we ask Adam some like of his insights, his background as it applies, I, you know, we're good friends. I wouldn't know how you would describe yours. And I'll say just a smidge more about mine is that I think I prepared myself to saturate in Illich and Lash. Um, particularly Illich, you know, so it's no surprise Agnum Ben and so forth were kind of right there early. But uh, uh, this a guy who's been on the podcast three or four times, a friend at that time, Guido Preparata, and I were talking mm -hmm. and he he was he was writing me saying, Mike, you know, he was with the Vatican over for the Ebola crisis. And he said, I know how this mm -hmm. game is played. And he already said, I talked to a friend in the provincial governments high up of Canada who said, at least in Canada, this is going towards a, a vaccine travel passports. You know, right away. So again, he could have been wrong. Wow. But early on, I yeah. felt I got confirmation from somebody, not like in the know, but it, it was the phrase, I saw this game with the Vatican Ebola. And I thought, what the hell does that mean? Uh -huh. necessarily, right? But that whole yeah. thing settled. In, and then, uh, so that's a little bit of mine. Michael, what was yours? Well, I'm kind you of were by, prepared from first. <laughs> kind of by personality. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say. You know, I'm suspicious of that, you know, and, and, and like Adam mentioned, groupthink. I mean, the herd mentality, I mean, the biggest shock of my life was be entering academia and realizing <laughs> that free thinking was not allowed here, you know, that because, uh, <laughs> and, and, and you saw this, and you saw this, and Adam was written about this a little bit, um, at the beginning of the pandemic, one of the first intellectuals of a world-class level to come out against it was the person right. I would the most expect to do it, Giorgio Gambin, right? Yeah. And, and, okay. he, and he wrote his, I mean, he's a really wonderful thinker in, in his book, The State of Exception, right? right? Or Sakharov, you know, it's what he's talking about exactly what was going down. And he said so. Yep. And all these intellectuals turned on him like venomous turning uh -huh. even people i knew in graduate school or even before and after who were big agamben people they felt betrayed that he stayed consistent you know yeah. it was nuts and but i'm just yeah. i'm not the kind of person i'm always you know just by it's a horrible thing being irish cat is that you uh you know you're always looking for a fight and you always don't agree with whatever anybody's telling you when it's when it's a whole group speaking to you. Well, like when they're telling you at the yeah. pandemic, don't touch your face. I'm like, who, what? Who doesn't touch yeah. their face? How are you going to not touch your face? <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. And I, and I knew it was baloney when they said two weeks to flatten the curve, and then all of a sudden it's three weeks. Okay, four months. Okay, we'll just stay home. I remember I seeing hula hoops, you know, hoops in parks where you could sit, right? And, and I was shut down by friends, enemies, left and right. Mm -hmm. And I was, mm -hmm. it turns out I was right. Yeah. right. yeah. Fascinating. So, yeah. Uh, so Adam, the, um, <laughs> you know, if you mad. convince people, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, and, uh, something you're good at, Adam, because we've mentioned Christopher Lash. Now, I just want you to give, I want to, I'm going to lead off by telling you to give us a, like a, a primer on maybe like the critique of the medical industry today, you know, almost like they, you know, people weren't prepared. But before that, another gift you have, because we had mentioned Lash, Lash will quite often review Burke of uh, social science or specific papers mm -hmm. and say, um, the evidence the scholar presents belies his conclusion and then says like what they actually mm -hmm. point to. 
And that was one of my favorite moments reading Christopher Lash. And I think you have a mind that's able to do that too. So for example, people can go to Front Porch Republic where, well, let me do a better example is uh, I'm gonna have you talk a little bit later on uh, the Rosa book, but you, you read a whole book and then you just wonder how this guy came to those conclusions based on the way he laid out the world. And then uh, even in this review of a book of papers on pandemics, you know, you could say so many points about the papers, individual papers, yet generally the book itself took the whole thing for real, right? So um, mm -hmm, begin, mm -hmm. I just, I just want to compliment you on that and to turn people to your works, which we'll discuss at the end. But if you could give people like using Illich and really your own work and your background, what's going on? Like what's the story of medicine and how it got so big and how it got so much control? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, so going back a little bit to how my background maybe uh, prepared me, even in a surprising way, to deal with the pandemic in a way that many other people didn't. I mean, I forgot to mention that uh, my PhD dissertation was on medicalization. So um, I did not anticipate that my argument would uh, apply to a current event like this, but it, I mean, it certainly turned out to in, in a lot of ways. Um, so, I mean, I can, I can kind of, start with that maybe um mm -hmm. i got i didn't anticipate i didn't intend to write about that when i went to my program i started off interested in religion and politics and the, okay. the main kind of question that really interested me was uh i mean this is kind of technical political philosophy stuff but like what kinds of arguments uh can we legitimately make in the public square for and against you know our preferred policies or outcomes like, can we make religious arguments when we're arguing for or against different laws? Or is that, you know, uh, an, in, an, an attempt to impose values that nobody else shares and so on and so forth? It's a big debate. Um, so what's the status of religious claims in public, basically? Um, how, do, how does the argument work out? So that, that's, that's what was always kind of interesting to me. But I did a couple of small projects uh, on different aspects of, of medicine. And I realized the same kind of question um, really shows up when you're thinking about uh, medicine and specifically like the kinds of arguments you can and can't make when you're trying to show that something is or is not what you would call a medical problem. Like how, how does that actually work logically? How do you show mm -hmm. that something's a medical problem? Um, and medicalization is just the name for the process that brings more and more stuff under the purview of medicine by defining it as a medical problem. So you do something so hysterical, which I want to mention is in one of your papers, you can tell people which one he takes the search engine and says medicalization of, and you did it with every letter of the alphabet. And you, you yeah. come up with this wild list of things that have been medicalized or at least addressed as medicalized and it's worth its weight in yeah. gold. And the fact that like, that's what real <laughs> scholars can do is to get, okay, so go back to what you were saying. It's brilliant. Yeah, yeah I mean, that's, that's a really fun thing. I, I, I would like to do it again and see what new things come up. You know, that was yeah. several years yeah. ago that I, I did that. But I mean, it gives you a little snapshot and just gives you a sense of, uh, that's not a list of necessarily things that people want to be medicalized, but they're either, you know, complaining about it or recommending it or talking about mm -hmm. it or, or whatever. So, I mean, just anything is up for medicalization. And so how do you do that is the question. How do you, how do you make the argument? This is a medical problem. Um, and so my, my account is 
you know, you ask why has medicine gotten so big? Why has it taken up so much of our lives? I, I think that it's this process of definition that's a big part of it, not the whole thing, but I think that we have this idea that if you're gonna figure out what is or is not a medical problem, well, on the one hand, it's really easy, you just got some facts, you know? So you know, some facts about the body, how, how the body works, biological facts. And then you use those facts to show what's a medical problem or not. And that just doesn't work logically. There's all kinds of interesting examples. Um, there's a, for example, there's a, a syndrome, a kind of like a lesion in the brain or something. And the effect of having this lesion, it's very rare, but the effect of having this, this weird thing in your brain is it's called Gorman syndrome. Okay. Uh, you, you have a kind of a, a, a superhuman sense of taste and you're very discriminating when it comes to food. You know, you can tell the difference between good wines and all this kind of stuff. That is a fact about your brain. And technically it's like the body malfunctioning. But nobody's uh -huh. gonna say that's like a problem. That's actually kind of cool, right? That you have that. Yeah, right, right, right. So there's, <laughs> so there's all kinds of situations where just because I you can describe the fact doesn't doesn't show you that it's a problem, right? So you can't define a medical problem based on facts, and our society is totally in love with facts, right? Mm -hmm. On the other hand, sometimes people say, "Well, it's a medical problem if it feels bad, like it, you know, feels I uh, feel in pain or I'm uncomfortable and." whatever I decide is, uh, you know, a medical problem is basically a medical problem. So we'd rely on feelings. This doesn't work either for obvious reasons. So in a nutshell, I think we're, uh, the cultural aspect that helps explain the expansion of medicine has to do with our inability to talk about anything other than in terms of facts or feelings. We have to be able, if we're going to call something a problem at all, we have to be able to appeal to something like objective values. Like this is not just bad because it feels bad. This is not just bad because it's a malfunction in the body. No, it's like bad because it's bad for you as a human being, whether you like it or not. Then we're in the realm of like, you know, ethics. Mm -hmm. And that is not a realm that we allow because for the same reasons that we don't like religion and politics, we don't want people imposing our values uh, on one another. So this, you know, shows up constantly in all of the most interesting cases of medicalization, contests over medicalization. I mean, the recent stuff over the, the trans issue is a perfect example. Uh, um, we have these facts about the body. Uh, puberty, for example, is something that happens to the body. And the obvious, you know, next stage of the argument, which you've already seen, you know, made by some people, is that because I don't like this fact about the body, and because the fact is that using drugs, medicine can change this fact about the body. Therefore, we can define it as a medical problem and we can, you know, arrest puberty so that we can, uh, uh, you know, choose our, our, choose our gender or whatever it might be. So, so I, I think that that, that kind of, it's, I call it a rush from judgment. We, we don't want to make judgments about what's objectively good and bad for human beings. And this is really helpful for the expansion of medicine because it allows you to define anything and everything as a medical problem and therefore under the jurisdiction of medical institutions. Michael, there's a mower outside my window, so I'm going to hold off talking for a second. I'm hitting. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, I mean, I, I think well, uh, it's important, I think, to mention that. Um, it's not just a medicalization. I mean, that, that's part of it. And how impersonal 
the practice, you know, you use the word practice of medicine, how impersonal it has become. I remember a few years ago, my mother, who recently died from dementia at seven years, so I took her to the, to the doctor because she had to have a brain scan. And the physician never looked at her or talked to her. Uh-huh. She talked yeah. to me and he said, well, you know, my mom's right here, right? Uh, and it struck me as, wow, this is such an impersonal way to go about things. And the woman basically didn't even look at me. She looked at her computer. Um, yeah. Whereas, you know, I also have experiences, I think I mentioned this on the show before, where uh, when my third child was born, yeah, he's 28 now. When he was born, uh, his uh, he was born at home with a midwife, but his umbilical cord only had two vessels, and usually they have three. And so the midwife, uh-huh. you, you should talk to the doctor. And I and I called our, our family physician, Doctor Kalsa, who unfortunately is no longer practicing medicine. And he said, and he said, you know what? I'll stop by my way home from work. <laughs> he came over. <laughs> he was practicing medicine. He did a house call. And he, that's not the first only one he did. He did a couple of them for me. And he came in, he checked yeah. it out, yeah. you know, made us feel at ease. He said, you know, I don't, I don't know what to say about this. He said, baby seems okay. Just he gave me this other doctor to talk to. Uh, and they were actually, and this is so this is 28 years ago, they were actually practicing medicine that was it yeah, right. Care, right? But where yeah. where where it's been let in, I and I've seen over the in intervening almost thirty years, is that that practice of medicine is becoming a rarity, and it's yeah. it's kind of the industrial model that we're looking at. And I, and when people talk about the, the the coming of robot surgeons, robot doctors, I mean it's like it's the logical conclusion to that trajectory, right? Yeah, a hundred percent. Yeah, yeah. The, um, I mean that that kind of more uh, philosophical or discursive aspect of medicalization connects with that institutionalization that you're talking about. I mean, it when it was a practice, you you it wasn't just about you know facts and feelings. It was about like engaging with another human being, and you cared about what was good and bad for them, and so on and so. Facts and feelings lend themselves to this institutionalization because that's what institutions can deal with 100%. I mean, I've seen so much of the same thing. I was, um, I don't remember I was telling this to Mike before you got on or whether I said this kind of in my introduction, but my wife has multiple sclerosis. And so we've had all kinds of, you know, interactions with the medical system and some are good, some are bad, but on the whole, it's exactly as you describe. Uh, In order to practice, you know, what we call compassion, we have to depersonalize everything because you know only the facts are going to help us address people's feelings and you can't meet the person who's actually there so um, we just we think like in my family the um i remember being radicalized i was reading ivan illich especially his confere barbara duden who wrote a lot about the body and so forth and my uh, wife was pregnant with our first child and we went to the obstetrician and he was uh, you know, I think we had the uh, the scans, but he wanted amniocentesis. And I said, I'm just not so sure I see the reason. And he, the doctor just said, they could die. <laughs> you know, and then I just walked <laughs> out. I just, you know, I don't think I've ever yeah. been, you know, we were kind of newlyweds. My daughter was a honeymoon baby. And I don't think I've ever been this directive with my wife. But I looked at her and said, we're walking out. Yep. And then when we got in the car, yeah. my wife remembered that the previous um, 
oh, maybe a couple months before in our church in, in downtown Rochester, the priest had uh, mentioned a midwife there, you know, and then we figured we would call the priest, find her name. And that put me on, you know, a lot of outside practices early. But yeah. subsequently, you know, yeah. it was the episode with that same daughter my wife was pregnant with, with Gardasil, right? right? The pressure got amped uh -huh. up. And then I recently had, um, I don't think I'd been to the doctor. I'm not saying people shouldn't go. A pretty healthy guy. I don't think I'd been in six or seven years. And then I had a uh, inguinal hernia. And so I figured, ah, I'm going to try and get in and get out. And this was my experience last fall. You know, so I made an appointment with the doctor. They saw I definitely had one. I kind of got to the surgeon. There was all these appointments, right? You had to have a COVID test like every day before. And I was putting a lot of gas money yeah. into it. And I was still just trying to stay focused. Like I was training for a marathon. And I kind of got in <laughs> and got out. And then they had me meet with my uh, local, uh, my, I guess my primary care person. And then uh, th we had a nice talk. And then uh, this person said, you know, can we just, it's been like so long, can we just do a physical? And I thought, yeah. Now my physical came out and showed I was healthy, but the number of things uh -huh. they recommended, and I think a, a you know, colonoscopy would be fine. That was one. Now I probably won't do it because they just made me so mad about like everything else. So it, was a, it was a tunnel that opened up into 15 highways that were just going to grab yeah. me in you know, to this thing. Yeah. You know, so. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's like the criminal justice system, right? Once you're in, you can't yep. get out, even, even if you no, serve and it your seems time. To have really, there it seems to have really, uh, the genie has left the bottle you know, during COVID. Yeah. It's something about it. Like most people will experience it now, Adam, with dentistry, you know, that the uh -huh. desire to push products and to, you know, define needs and impute needs, right. as opposed to ever going in for a tooth cleaning now, it's like you have 50 salespeople yeah. telling you, you know, everything from, you know, using the fancy language of, you know, your molar has, the, you know, it's just mm -hmm. crazy. But they say drill, yeah. bill, and bill, right? <laughs> that used to be it. Go ahead, Adam. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's uh, the consumer aspect of it is, of course, part of the whole thing, right? Part of the driving. Yeah. You know, from one perspective, you you can kind of uh, blame the experts for driving medicalization. Well, that's just one side of the coin. The the consumption also drives it, or the mm -hmm. the that's effort right. to get people. The advertising drives it as well. So there's this collusion between people who think they are totally above that kind of money grubbing stuff because you know they're professionals and they're only in it to help people and they went to school and so on and so forth but there's a collusion between that and all the corporations who uh, i mean as we saw in covid yeah. uh clearly uh have an interest in yeah it's just completely obvious that there is a financial interest in medicalizing things that's just yeah. undisputable so which is why you know part of that is at I was so angry. <laughs> Anger is the theme of this show. I was so angry at the beginning of the pandemic, <laughs> being a professor, right? There, because I felt those kids were traumatized. Oh, oh yeah, oh yeah. I've never yeah. seen it in all my years of teaching. Uh, uh, it was like watching talking to shell shocked people. Uh, but yeah. around that time, I said, you know, eff it. Uh, and so I introduced him in a couple of my classes, at least, uh, Ivan Illich's essay uh, on medical nemesis, uh -huh. the, which, which was not only published, I think it was in 68 it was published, or 1971, 71. And then after he died, and it was published in a medical journal, in the, uh, I think it was the uh -huh. British Medical Journal. And then when he died, uh -huh. they republished it, and they devoted the whole issue 
to Ivan Illich, you know, and his yeah. his thoughts about medicine. And I asked the students, they said, you know, so he died, I think, is 2003 or something, 2001. And I say to the students, uh -huh. do you think this would happen today? Mm -hmm. uh -huh. Absolutely not. Right. Absolutely not. Yeah. Because he was critiquing just like as, as he did in education is critiquing this. Uh, this tendency in medicine to, as we've seen, uh, to not be interested in health, but be interested in return customers. Right. Right. Yeah, so you yeah that's right. Your, your that's your own sovereignty to take care of yourself to the professional. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yep. That's really interesting that you did that. I, you know, teaching was horrible during the pandemic. I, I, that was also, of course, yep. part of the thing that radicalized me, just experiencing that. And, and especially, you know, thinking about the kids who um, their half their experience of college was just ruined, right, by that, or the worse, you know, we were thinking about the, the little kids who might not experience anything differently at this point like didn't know how long it was going to last and everything just a, a whole chunk of your life and all your assumptions are being created um, but um during the pandemic and i was fortunate enough to teach at a college that was just about a just as a just about as um counter-cultural and lenient as you could possibly get yeah. so um you know we still met in person and you're what supposed to wear a mask or a face shield so. Oh, that, that was here at the University of Dubuque. So oh, very cool. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, you know, you had to wear a mask and everything, but uh, you had the face shield option. So I always wear the face shield option with it all the way up. So it's just, you know, kind of a <laughs> statement. But... <laughs> or the, or the, or the, beard, yeah. the beard mask you thing. You how I had to wear it. Yeah, yeah, no. yeah. But uh, during, I can't remember when it was exactly, but I had a small group of pretty advanced students and I offered a, a special seminar and I called it like our secret dissident seminar. We read all of Medical Nemesis, the whole book. Wow, uh, we read the Agamben fact you exist and... is so cool. <laughs> and uh, it was great. I mean, I had a philosophy student in there, and but also one of my students who was just minoring in it, philosophy, but um, he uh, he's going to medical school, right? And he is planning to become a doctor. And so we got to read a lot of stuff that was really critical of his profession and made a big impact on him, I know. <laughs> enough of an impact that he actually hasn't gone to medical school yet. So maybe that's bad, but <laughs> so, um, yeah, you know, it was, it was bad. It was also an opportunity, uh, to, to really help people see things and think through some deep assumptions that they might not have been able to, to, to think through otherwise. And you said, you see a lot of people kind of getting radicalized. I don't know if we addressed that when you talked about yours, I think it was before. And yeah. are they following up, you know, yeah. are they following up with that or just kind of, did they develop a smell or are they kind of doing their reading and things? Uh, I mean, the people that I know, uh, it's been, had a very lasting impact on them. Yeah. Uh, and they, you know, continue reading in a certain direction. Um, I, I mentioned earlier, like um, uh, my friend who teaches politics at one of the other local colleges here had a similar kind of experience. Um and uh, did the 180, but he's, he, we still talk a lot about things. And I pushed a lot of stuff that I had already read um, mm -hmm. on him. And now he's, you know, he's reading King's North. He's reading a lot of Christopher, Christopher Lash. And yeah. So um, that's my experience. Yeah. yeah. Let, me, let me ask you then. Let's just, let's take a few minutes. Oh, go ahead, Michael. No, I, Adam, I just want, because I haven't, what I haven't seen 
is much of that 180 turn amongst the professoriate. I mean, oh no, I have not. you, that. I can. The, most of the people I know in the college I'm I'm working at, nobody. They're still all in, right? Yeah. <laughs> still getting the boosters yeah. and everything, right? And still wearing, yeah. wearing masks. Yeah, yeah. The the uh, one guy I mentioned, I mean, he's he's totally the exception to the rule. Uh, yeah. It's very much the same um, in for for most people in my case. So yeah, that's. That is another huge lesson of the pandemic, which is, I, I was grading a paper, I was telling Michael, this is a really nice break from grading papers um, mm -hmm. doing this podcast. And I was just, I was just grading one. And uh, what was it? It was, it was uh, a senior seminar paper about Alaskan politics, because the guy's from Alaska. And he was talking about some moves to gut public education and the criticism is, well, this um, benefits conservatives because educa less educated people are less critical and they're more conformist and so on and so forth. And I just thought that is just <laughs> false, totally false. I mean, I have so never funny. met, it's, I've never met anybody who is so conformist <laughs> as an, an intellectual, you know, yeah. there's, right, right, right. there's this book, one. I haven't read it. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. There's this book. I've not read it. Uh, I just know the title and the title captures it perfectly. It's called The Treason of the Intellectuals. I've never heard of that. It's, Who's I the think author? it's a French book from the... Okay. I can't remember. It's it's from the, you know, the, the Nazi period or something like that. It's talking about yeah, all the intellectuals yeah. who went over and it's just a... Yeah, because when you're an intellectual or an academic or whatever, your fundamental kind of concern is that people don't think you're stupid, right? And yeah. if you can, if you can paint a certain point of view or an opinion as equivalent to being stupid, then you can just herd all the intellectuals wherever they, wherever you want them to go. Because Absolutely. above all, I do not want to seem like those stupid people. <laughs> and that is precisely, it's precisely you know, by design. I mean, one of the books I, yeah. I talked yeah. about this semester and this whole year is uh, Edward Bernays' book on propaganda. But he's he oh, really, yeah. because he thinks it's a good thing, right? And, and that's, <laughs> yeah. that's yeah. what he says there is that the target audience is not, you know, the working class. It's the managerial class. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. So you yep. target the, those guys. And, and, and this goes back to my, my doctorate is in uh, early modern English literature, religious literature. This goes back to the English Reformation. I mean, how can you turn yeah. the most Catholic country, basically, in, in in Europe from Catholic, where the king was even named the defender of the faith, right, to Protestant uh -huh. in, a, in, a, in not even a decade? It was by folk, and this is what yeah. Henry did, right? He, he took the monasteries away from the church and gave them to his nobles, and, and the propaganda was all centered on the nobles, right? Uh, because they had the power and they were the they were the middle managers of that of that society. And then when the when the Counter Reformation came in, that was that was precisely the demographic that the Catholic Church was looking at. So when they sent Jesuit priests in hiding, they were not going to minister to to the peasants. They were ministering to nobles uh -huh. in hiding. Right. Mm -hmm. This is this is the formula. And I remember when I was doing my doctorate, I remember thinking, this is the template for propaganda. This is it right it is, here. it is, it is. Yeah, we, see it, yeah. we see it to the day. Yeah. And and that's the class of people. For, for instance, I live in Jackson County, the home of the Republican Party. 
Uh, also a space yeah. center. Uh-huh. Uh, and but so we live uh, 20 miles from Jackson and 30 miles from Ann Arbor. And, and to this day, if I go to Ann Arbor, which is about one of the more high powered intellectual centers in the world, you go to the whole there's a Whole Foods in Ann Arbor, you go there. You can, almost everybody's wearing a mask still. <laughs> no, really? Wow. <laughs> yeah. When I go there, I said, it's like I visit a different planet. Where, where <laughs> huh. Let me let me ask you, Adam. Yeah, Let's if you I, took, say, uh, go ahead, go ahead. No, you go ahead. That's fine. Okay. Which is, I thought like, you know, because you're so good at explaining this stuff that if you, you know, if, it's almost like, let's take 10 minutes and do a little bit of primer and some of the basic maybe concepts that help people maybe understand it, why we might all be simpatico, but I'm going to ask you, and I know you'll be able to handle these. Some, we might have a lot of listeners who might not be familiar with the term iatrogenesis. Describe that. Huh. Well, iatrogenesis, uh, it's, Doctor caused harm, I think, is how you translate that, uh, or harm caused by the people who are trying to prevent the harm. Um, and so, I mean, you're probably referring specifically to Illich, who made that a big, you know, uh, central and also concept. It's always the third leading cause of death in the country, right? Yeah, exactly. Delayed, so, I mean, yeah. one way to yeah, one way to explain that is you, know, you you can kind of see it at play out at different levels, and that's the you know basic level, the literally doctors killing you by trying to save you. I mean, as you mentioned that, depending on the year, it's always kind of floating around, but that's around the third leading cause mm -hmm. of death is medical errors uh, in, in hospitals. So, I mean, that's an obvious, simple case of iatrogenesis. And, but and, um, and should I, I should add Illich that. kind of, you know. I just want to add before you go, I mean, when I checked, when the, when the pandemic started, uh, the, the numbers of people dying from 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 hospital or physician caused uh, problems was was higher than the death from COVID. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I'm sorry. Go yeah. Ahead. I mean, I, COVID. I think. Yeah. I mean, during COVID, iatrogenesis was on steroids, uh, most definitely mm -hmm. from all different kinds of angles. Um, but um, I mean, I would I would say that's a pretty good word to sum up exactly what the response to the pandemic was was an iatrogenic response. But, um, you know, there's that kind of like actual physical, like the doctor gives you a medicine and it uh, has an interaction with some other medicine or, or something, and then you, you die. That's the atrogenesis. But I think the more interesting uh, level to think about the concept on is, is when you kind of move up and you think about social and, and cultural iatrogenesis, which is what Illich was especially interested in. So there he's, he's more interested in... Um, patterns of, of thinking, uh, you know, kind of like a, a safetyist pattern of thinking or a deference to experts or uh, right. the kind of constant attempt to define more and more things as medical problems, because then you can sell the drugs that, that cure the problems. That kind, of, that kind of thing, the effect of that is, he says, to render us less capable of, of um, self-healing of mm -hmm. managing our own bodies because we are constantly relying on other people to do it for us. We actually develop less of the, the capacity to deal with suffering or even the actual physical capacity to fight off diseases 
uh, we, we lose some of that because we're, you know, you could think about that also on a literal physical level because we're so concerned to make sure we don't expose ourselves to any pathogens, then as a result, when we are exposed to some pathogens, then we don't have the capacity right, to right, deal right. with them as other people might have been. So, yeah. So I, that, that's, I think, how about, how about, a, okay. that's- Theatrogenesis. No, go ahead. Now, the, now the next yeah. one, and I think, you know, people need to hear, working in the church, Illich and others would see that a lot of the things we're seeing about institutions turning against themselves or intend, against their intended uh, good effects, you know, were first kind of demonstrated in the church. So. Um, the next one I'm going to ask you to talk about in terms of uh, medicine, Adam, is imputed needs. But again, in the church, we would see years ago, all of a sudden, you know, according to Illich, uh, under Elquin, Charlemagne's library, you get a merge of the priesthood and the pastor role. And then that's the beginning of the time where the priesthood starts imputing uh -huh. needs, right? Like there's all these popular devotions and people could just pray stations of the cross, but somehow it was better. Or somehow like I need, you know, you're imputing people mm -hmm. that you need more of their services. So describe imputed needs as they might yeah. pertain to the field of medicine. Well, I mean, uh, you know, what we were talking about before, right? The, um, the consumerism where you're, where you're constantly selling people things that, you know, we live in a culture that sells you things all the time. So that's not mm -hmm. exactly unique. Um, but there's a difference when it comes to the things that professionals sell you, because what the professionals sell has to be defined as something that you need, not just something that you, that you want. That's the, that's the raison d'etre of a professional is to like professionally distribute needs. Um, but obviously that gener <laughs> kind of ironically generates its own need. Um, for the professionals to sustain themselves and to expand their purview by constantly finding these other things that that people need. So, um, mm -hmm. you know, it's 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 especially easy to do that. I think I think this is a key point. It's especially easy to impute needs when it comes to medicine. I mean, like you said, right? Uh, you went to your obstetrician and you're like, "Why do I need this?" And he said, "Because." you might die or something, right? The well, baby might die. What is, yeah, the baby might die. Right. What is more of a need than to stay alive, right? Mm -hmm. you, you, it's, right. A, it's a kind right, of a blackmail right. thing. It is blackmail. Uh, yeah. It's blackmail. And that's, yeah. what yeah. I mean, there's so, a lot yeah. of blackmail. Yeah. Well, that's what a lot of the, the doctors encouraging teenagers to get trans surgery and pr procedures, that's what exactly what they tell their parents, right? Do you want a live son or a dead daughter, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, exactly. Right? Yeah, that's right. That's heavy. Yeah. I heard an ad yesterday yeah. on some, not an ad, but it was a discussion on some news station, but it was about the doubling in requests for leg extension surgery. And what it is, is men who are <sighs> short, they go through the surgery, costs about 170,000 to 200,000 bones. The recovery time is really, really long. And I don't know the actual numbers, uh -huh. right? So this could be sensationalist. It could be from two to four but they doubled. Yeah. But the mere possibility yeah. of that, you know, is an imputed need. Let me ask you another one. Um, you know, we're going to think of the scholar Ulrich Becht. I think I've read three quarters of the work. I need to read the whole thing again. Uh, yeah. The role of risk, the idea of risk, uh, risk immunity. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Beck is, I mean, I read, I read his, the risk society. Um, and he is a thinker that I really want to return to and, and dig more deeply into because when I read that book, uh, it was one of those. Uh, it was written in the '80s, I think. Um, mm -hmm. When I read that book, it's it's just one of those books you read and you think, "Wow, he 
he captured the whole thing. And it's like reading Illich, you know, it just becomes more and more prophetic as, as or time Lash. goes right, on. Right, 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 yeah. Every chapter. Yeah, or Lash, yeah. 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 Um, but uh, Beck, you know, here's kind of the way I, uh, the, the maybe one of the, the main points uh, in the book, at least as I take it. So, you know, we have uh, the industrial revolution and you got all the factories and uh, the factories are making stuff and, you know, it has all these kind of you know, bad side effects, pollution and workplace injuries and general satanic mills and so on and so forth. But what's being produced by the factories is, is the goods that, you know, we need or want. It gives us the stuff, it makes the food that we eat and so on. So you have uh, a system that is distributing goods and that's how profits are made and that's how control is maintained by controlling the distribution of goods so beck is trying to grapple with the great change that comes when all those side effects pile up and the bads uh the the risks of producing those goods start to um uh become visible to people but this actually produces some really interesting effects because there's like key differences between the goods and the bads. So the goods, you know, you, you go to the store and you buy something that's made by a factory and you got it in your hand, like a concrete thing and it's yours, you can enjoy it, you can use it, um, whatever. Like it's, it's, it's very obvious that and you can dispute what's good and bad of human beings, but it's like an obvious thing. Whereas mm -hmm. the bads are, take environmental pollution, for example. It's like over there somewhere, right? Mm -hmm. And I don't really know about it, except that a, an expert tells me about it. Mm -hmm. And so the experts suddenly become empowered in a way that they weren't uh, at the early stages of the Industrial Revolution, because you got to have an expert, not to point out the bads. I mean, if you live next to a, a, a toxic sewage dump, then yeah, I guess the bad is pretty concrete in your mind. But otherwise, you live in an era where you're constantly being told by experts that the risk of doing X is that Y bad thing will happen. Mm -hmm. And you, you, the power flows to these experts and these professionals who know how to kind power of quantify the risk. Experts. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but the other aspect of it is the, you know, this, this really scrambles politics too, right? Mm -hmm. Because we're used to thinking, especially when it comes to environmental, and I would also say medical issues, we're used to thinking in like, well, the right wants to get the government regulation out and the left wants to, you know, uh, uh, add more regulation and so on and so forth. And the right cares about the corporate profits and the left cares about the people and so on. But the thing about risk is that it is profitable. It is very profitable to sell people precautions against risk. And so this becomes uh, a new model, a new business model. Yeah. It's a new market. So the, the bads, you're, the bads are getting distributed. And so now there's a new market for technologies that promise to redistribute the bads away from you. Uh, here, uh, I'll sell you this mask so that you don't get COVID. And so, uh, you know, Beck, he really puts his finger on a kind of, um, an emerging political economy that doesn't quite fit the old Marxist analysis and also just the, the categories of left and right don't really seem to work in this right. new world of risk either. And we really got to pay attention to one, 
how it empowers experts in a way that they weren't empowered before because risk is just a number. It's not a thing in the world, right? You can't right. see it. It's just a number. And it also generates these new business models. And so the people who are used to thinking of the government or the experts as the people who are protecting us from the risks, well, they got to rethink things because actually risk is really profitable, so profitable that uh, possibly even it might incentivize people to uh, manufacture some risks that didn't actually exist. Now, now you're showing your so, advice on consumer, Adam. You know, it's always latent. Yeah, go ahead, Michael. <laughs> I think all of this that you're describing, Adam, is, is predicated on a fucked up metaphysics because, and this goes back yep. now, a lot of what I've written about in all of my work, but especially in, in my graduate work was um, the impact of the scientific revolution on, on medicine and re religious thinking, because uh, so many of the people I wrote about in my dissertation were not only poets, but also alchemists or physicians. Uh, Henry Vaughan, the metaphysical mm -hmm. poet, was a, was a physician, a Paracelsian physician. And part of what their project was, what Henry Vaughan and his brother Thomas, was that they were rejecting Cartesian metaphysics that said that you know there was there was only the physical that we could we could attend to and then mm -hmm. later you come to people like david bohm when when his discussions of uh quantum physics and and, and so forth and he said you know the problem the problem right now is that we we have all these experts who think they're not part of of nature and so they come up with mm -hmm. with some approach to fixing a problem and then you need mm -hmm. to fix. You need to find something else to fix the problem that was caused by the pro this problem. So, and I think it, it yeah. kind of goes down to that root where the metaphysically and, and epistemologically, the way the way our culture looks at this stuff is, this is what happens. And I, I think um, then eventually you got no place to go but capitalism, right? And so mm -hmm. then that become. And I I would have been reading Eugene McCarrer's. The enchantments of mammon, and I think he's he's right on the money. Is yeah. because this this replaces yeah. this is this replaces the Christian metaphysics or the or or the the divine understanding of the, of the world, right? The sociological understanding of the world, and uh, yeah. and Rupert Sheldrake. I don't know if you've ever seen his band TED Talk. If he makes a great point there, talking about you know power flows, right? Where the power flows, but it's all where the money flows, right? And the money flows to the medical industry, right? It doesn't go to yeah. people researching uh, exotic butterflies in the Amazon. They're, they're, you know, it doesn't go to <laughs> scholars of metaphysical poetry, right? It doesn't go there. It, it goes <laughs> to medicine and technology. That's where the money is, right? Yeah. Which is why colleges and universities yeah. are having, seeing their humanities departments uh, become invisible. If not disappear yep. together. Yeah, right? That's right. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. How about yep. this? Adam? I'm not familiar uh, with that TED talk, but before we go on, I got got a question. Yeah. Now Please. I just watched watched it this week, and I'm sure this is a kind of, a kind of film that Adam would like. Are you familiar with the, the film, uh, the Book of Vision? No, no, but you know, I I I think it was you. I think I saw. I was mentioning to Mike. I, I don't really use Twitter, but I still have an account basically from COVID. I think you were talking about it on Twitter. Is yeah, well, right? I was because I somebody had been recommending it to me, but I couldn't find it available streaming or any place. 
And it was produced by, one of the producers was a man named Robin Minotti, who's Italian, lives in England. And I couldn't figure out why this movie's not around. And the, the premise of the movie, it takes place in the 17th century. And there's this, the main character is a physician who still wants to hear about his patient's dreams and aspirations and feelings. And uses that, uh, in, yeah. you know, in his, uh, not only his diagnosis, but his way to approach, uh, facilitate their healing. And it's really a beautifully filmed movie. I mean, it's, the visuals are extraordinary. And it was a, uh, it was produced by Terrence Malick, for instance. Hmm. Uh, and I couldn't figure yeah. out, like, maybe I still don't know. If you can find it, look at it. And I finally did get a, get a copy. Somebody sent me some a link that I was able to see. So this Robin Minotti worked with uh, Terrence Malick for no, a while. He did. But here's the other thing. Okay. And I, this is what I, no, Robin Minotti, if you go to his Twitter page, he's he's ripping on the medicalization industry. Yes, yes. That's how I know the yeah. name. I knew I had heard his yeah. name. He was the guy who did that, I think, an hour-long interview with Eric Clapton after Eric Clapton oh, okay. was yeah, yeah, yeah. by the vaccine. Okay. Uh-huh. And, I, yeah. and as we saw that happen, Clapton was blacklisted by the by the power structure. And I, I think, you know, I'm sure Robin Minotti was blacklisted as well because they came out against huh. that, right? And I, I'm wondering if that's why this movie hasn't found any distribution, not even in DVD form, right? I'm definitely going to look for it, you know? Yeah, I will too. That yeah. sounds really good. I mean, I think that is, uh, you know, like I can offer some philosophical or political analysis. We can, we can talk, we can make arguments. I think that is really what we need. We need art and stories uh, that present you know, that kind of challenge the narrative and present an alternative narrative. That's, that's where things, you know, turn. Uh, people aren't yeah. mostly interested in the kind of arguments that I like to make. They, they watch movies think, and they read books. It makes and, me think too that like, I was talking to a student about AI and in fact, uh, the abbot of the monastery, you know, and I think there's a connection here and I don't mean to go too far afield, but like with AI, okay, we, we need to, we need to monitor it. But it's also incumbent on us. Now, I'm going to reduce this to kind of a left brain, right brain thing. But if AI kind of mimics the left brain, but excellently does so, as well as regulating it and uh, necessarily more important, and this would, I'd think of Owen Barfield. And, but we need to, you know, we need to have an evolution of consciousness. We need to kind of work on these things, becoming more human, that, um, that even a trained, you know, that a good mind, you know, you could have one level of consciousness that really can't tell the difference between AI and something else. But I really believe, and tell me if you disagree, because I know you understand the basic idea I'm getting at. But the other response is like, we have societal mental regression, where AI, you know, is looking a lot like human thought. But the problem is human thought is looking more and more mechanical. And that kind of goes yeah. to what you were suggesting. Right? You know, Adam, any thoughts on that? You know, that it seems to yeah, drive I mean, this I kind of idea of developing the truly human will lead to more community. It'll lead to more... You know, human flourishing, it'll lead to more engagement with nature. You know, if we set ourselves the task of becoming more than these kind of left brain automatons, you know, as opposed to using our left brain to outwit people on arguments and just make sure AI or the technocracy <laughs> doesn't grow, you know. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's kind of a tricky question. I mean, um, <laughs> uh, I think uh, for better or for worse, maybe for better, maybe that's just how it is, I don't know, but but most people, the effect of AI 
on most people in society will be, as you said, it's most people's minds will come more and more to resemble AI. They won't use it. They'll just like uh, be absorbed into that kind of structure. Um, and yeah, yeah. not literally maybe, but the result will be that they won't be able to tell the difference between what a human is doing and what an AI is doing. But I think that there will be other people for whom it is an opportunity to like kind of reclaim and rediscover and, uh, you know, you, you sharpen yourself like against uh, yeah. this kind of reduction of the human. You sharpen yourself and you, you rediscover what it really might mean to be to be human. So I, I think beautiful poetry, I actually like your life dependent on it. Yeah. yeah. I'm actually yeah. kind of optimistic because it's such a star. I mean, it's a little bit like COVID, right? It forces you one way or the other. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, for the people who are forced one way, that's, that's great. Um, but it has a negative effect on everybody else. So I, I, in some ways, I'm kind of hopeful because AI is like, you know, like you're talking about the humanities, um, Michael. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. of course, that's totally the case. But um, I've read a couple of pieces that, you know, just make the argument that the, the importance of the humanities, it's never been as easy to demonstrate the importance of the humanities to the people who are going to care about them already, right. because you, you can contrast it to what is happening and what's accelerating. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I'll, I'll give an example. Um, on my own campus, I, I mean, I, I'm grading papers I find one that I think has been generated by chat GPT, probably, you know, one out of 10 or something. It's already happening. It's yep, ridiculous. Yep. Mm -hmm. um, and I, um, I, I've been working with a group of faculty and students. I had this kind of idea rattling around. I would trot it out in classes. I would just propose students a hypothetical. What if you had the opportunity to live in a tech-free dorm with some other people who signed up and decided, you know, you're gonna follow certain rules uh, for the use of technology while you live together, so on and so forth. I usually had like five to ten percent of the classes say, "Yeah, I'd do that." So I decided, why not try to try this out? So I'm teaching a major term starts on Tuesday, and this is the model. So we'll we'll have a class and we'll read we'll read Illich, we'll read stuff about tech, Jocko Lule. Um, but they will live in a dorm where they don't have a smartphone, no video games, um, oh, some other cool. rules, and for for the month, right? And I don't think that that would have been attractive to students if it weren't for the, I mean, I have one student who's in this class and, you know, I asked him like, why are you doing this? And he said, uh, he's like a sophomore. And he just looked at me and he said, we, like we students, we don't live socially healthy lives. And I want to figure out how to do that. Yeah. And wow. that is wow. just That's profoundly true. insightful. And he, he recognizes mm -hmm. that. And it's like, they don't really know how to do it, but they know they need to figure out how to do it. And some of them are attracted to the, to the challenge of trying, so. Very, very cool. So how about like, as we kind of draw to a close, give uh, some minutes to, I think something that is uh, hopeful at the end, you know, uh, another, um, yeah. another article you sent me was, uh, you, you brought in a scholar that, whose name I'd seen, but I'll, I didn't even know what his main insights would be, didn't know his field or anything, uh, Harmit Rosa. But there you, he makes a distinction. Tell us a little about him, your interest in him, and the distinction between control and resonance. Because you know, we talked about risk, we talked about all these things, but you know, there's this anxiety epidemic and you know, a huge desire to control, control. You know, and yeah, fear, yeah. fear comes from a loss of control, right? So I was always saying, 
during yeah. those three years, everybody was saying, you know, love Trump's hate. And I was always pointing out that, oh, gosh, OK, for a slogan, fine. But it really means I hate Trump. And the other thing is uh, that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And the other thing is that in the Bible, not everybody. No, but not everybody has to adhere to this. But in the Bible, love is contrasted not with hate, but with fear. Right. Whoa. Then all of a sudden we yeah. can get somewhere trying to understand these times. And so Hermit Rosa, you know, and fear is based out of control. It's based out of control. And this this kind of distinction between control and the word resonance, you know, what what how did you find that it has explanatory power? What led you to it and describe it for people? I don't know what led me to it. I think I think I saw somebody else talking about the book itself. So I just I ordered it. Very short, very readable. Undergrads could read this book. It's and it's about it's got a lot of uh, yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah, that's that's one definite way to to describe it. I mean, um, I don't know exactly how hopeful it is at the end. Um, okay, in right. some ways, it's hope, hopeful in the sense that uh, you know the apocalypse uh, forces people to to restart or something like that. But yeah, well, he gave us he gave yeah, us a construct um, which could maybe work. You know, a kind of a construct with yeah, legs to start. I'm, you know, yeah. I mean, Rosa. Uh, so the, the idea of risk is a pretty good entree into the into his idea of of control. Like. It's interesting if you think about risk. Um, you think about somebody who is a risk taker, um, and they they seek out risky things and they do them. That's the opposite of somebody who wants control. That's somebody who wants to interact with the uncontrollable. Uh, I just showed this fantastic documentary to my students uh, at the end of the semester. It's called The Alpinist. I don't know if anybody's seen it. It's about no, a mountain climber. Um, and it's it's just got a lot. Of good elements that I, you know, messages that I want the students to kind of pick up on. But it's this guy, and he he go he does. It's hard to watch the movie. The kinds of things he does, just free climbing up crazy cliff faces, ice, and thousands and thousands of feet. And you know, this is a guy who does not need control. Instead, he feels most alive when he is. And this will be Rosa's turn when he's resonating with a nature that is fundamentally uncontrollable by him. Um, but it gives him a sense of, you can't call it control because that's gonna be a confusion of terminology, but it gives him a sense of his own capacity, right? He, he can grapple with this. Mm -hmm. He doesn't need control over it. No, he's, he's willing to take the risk so that he can feel, yeah, I mean, he, He's a unique guy, right? But he's like, when I'm doing this, I feel more calm and more in the zone than I feel when I'm, you know, just sitting around with my friends or, or something, right? It actually, it calms his mind because everything has to be focused on connecting with the mountain, reading the signs, figuring out how to get from one handhold to the next and so on and so forth. It's a really great, great image of what Rose is, Rose is talking about. But but he says like, this is, he's, he argues, this is our essential human capacity, the capacity right. to resonate with what is fundamentally uncontrollable, rather than to use technology, procedures, systems to render it controllable and manageable. When we do that, it actually falls silent and we can no longer connect with it. Um, and with it, with ourselves, with God, when we try to manage these things, they, they recede from us. Uh, I mean, in that article you mentioned, I kind of compare it to like a Chinese finger trap, right? Like the harder you try, the harder you're because trapped. you're asleep. No, use the uh, example of sleep. The, yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's true. Like the harder you try to fall asleep, the less likely you're going to be able to fall asleep because it's not something you control. It's something you have to let happen, right? Right. So it kind of comes out I mean, to his, meet you and you have to kind art, of let go into it. Yeah. Is that exactly you you fall, you fall asleep. You don't mm -hmm. like you don't do anything, you have to let it let it happen. So Rosa, and this is his account of modernity. Modernity is an effort to expand our control over the over the world. And um, we as a result, we lose this capacity to to resonate with right. the world itself. But the the his conclusion is that you know, this, we've succeeded beyond our wildest dreams in, you know, controlling things. But the, the counterintuitive effect is, he calls it the monstrous return of the uncontrollable. So, you know, the, the natural world, human nature itself maybe is, is uncontrollable, but that's a gift to us because we can resonate with that kind of uncontrollability. The uncontrollability of the modern world is different. We don't have that sense of capacity. We, you know, it's, it's the normal experience of, I don't know, my washing machine just broke and I tried to call and get a replacement and I was on the phone with them every day for a month and it didn't work in the end because it's you're just up constantly up against, meeting. yeah, yeah. Well, you're I, constantly I, up against something uh, that doesn't talk back to you, you mm -hmm. know? Yeah. Right. Well, it's interesting because when you say that, I mean, it reminds me, there's this, I don't know if you've seen this document or I've used it with philosophy courses it's called being in the world you know this one i don't know no, i don't it's know a good documentary it's basically about what's it called again mike being in the world okay okay and i show it to students like an intro philosophy courses because it shows you that philosophy does not necessarily have to be about reading really dull texts <laughs> that, that maybe philosophy is how you are behaving in the world so it's kind of heideggerian in a way and uh yeah. But this, you know, Heidegger's idea of worlding occurred to me as you were talking about this because, you know, one of the thing, points that he makes in, in the in the film is, you know, there was, you know, there was no jazz out there waiting for it to be discovered. People had to bring it forth, and now the world of jazz exists, right? Uh, but in, what we're what we're experiencing, and I think in a surveillance state, is just the opposite of that where it, and it really and i think the comparison to a kind of gnostic enclosed universe run by archons is is not a bad comparison um where and i think what you're talking about adam is you know the the response to that is a kind of worlding so this example the guy in, in the documentary on, on, on the mountain climber that's worlding right that's um, finding your way it's a kind of discovery of truth through you could call it mastery or expertise but not in a kind of professional way but you know so he you get to that liminal space and i find it i do it through music yeah. and through writing poetry other people do it through other uh -huh. experiences farming or whatever whatever happens to be where you enter in you discover a new world you open up something and it's a great example i don't know if you know the the guitarist michael hedges who's just i do not he died oh you gotta no. look him up look him up aerial boundaries yeah. by michael hedges and he reinvented how to play the guitar it's just stunning to see what he does unfortunately he died about 20 some years ago um as a young man a relatively young man but i saw an interview with him once and he talked about precisely this he said you know and he always uses different tunings for every song and he's a really wonderful composer 
he said, you know, I'll, so I'll, I'll change the tuning on the, on the guitar and a whole other world opens up. So mm -hmm. it's an example yeah. of that. And, yeah. and I think really that's, is. and this is what, um, this is what I find college students have been hungering for post COVID is experiences of authenticity, right? Yeah. They yeah. want to experience something real. They know yeah. they've observed a, 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 you know, a construction made of bullshit. They want to experience yeah. something real, or at least a, a lot of them. Yeah. They don't know how to do it. But they know. Yeah, and it's easy. right, and it's not only COVID. I mean, they. I think that they. <laughs> there's a lot of unreality in college per se, and not just you know be, during COVID. Uh, there's a lot of semblance of authenticity, <laughs> you know, yeah. Yeah, procedures. Yeah that they see through with no problem and everybody pretends to believe it, including the professors. And, yeah. and then you, I mean, I've got a, I got a colleague and um, every once in a while, you know, every couple of months or so, he's got like a running thing where he has students and faculty and just whoever he invites over to his house, his backyard with fire, uh, cook hot dogs, drink beer and stuff. And he, he'll do some, something like uh, everybody tells a story or he'll have one person give a little talk about some project that they're doing or so it, it's got this kind of academic-y sort of thing but it's completely informal um mm -hmm. and the relationships that you have with the people that you're encountering ideas with are totally different than they are in the classroom where you know you're just doing it for the grade and for the job and that's exactly you know that's what interferes with making it authentic because you have this ulterior purpose and you're pretending that you're doing it for some other reason, but really, you know, you're just there because that's what you do. You go to the pipeline, you get the job and so on and so forth. So those alternative, I mean, he's, that's what he's doing. He's creating a world in his backyard. He's creating a world. And the students, when they show up, like they, I always say to them, like, this is what, this is what the intellectual life is, not the stuff we do in the classroom. Like I try in the classroom, but, but this is where it's at. And uh, it has a big impact on them. Yes, I, I yeah. ask students. I said, "Do you guys talk about this stuff in the dorm? What do you guys do when you go? <laughs> you go on the weekends? What do you talk about? This stuff? What do you do?" Right. Yeah. What did yeah. he say? Yeah, I tell you. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Right. 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 Yeah. Well, Adam. Adam. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I had Michael would agree. You're so say more, but I want to say how simpatico you are and how easy it is. But say say your some concluding thoughts here. <laughs> Well, it wasn't a concluding thought. It was an additional thought. Uh, it was just a really striking thing. A student the other day, she's a, she's an RA. And this was a politics class. And uh, she was, what were we talking about? I can't remember, but somehow it, it came up about something like conversation in the dorms and things. And she said, oh, well, we have a kind of a policy against talking about controversial issues in the dorms. Like <laughs> we're, not, we're, not, we're kind of supposed to. Okay. Right. We're supposed to discourage students. I just said, "Are you are you serious? That's a policy." That is new said, to well, me. I've never heard that. Oh, well, I mean, she was a little bit. I was like, "It can't be a policy." That would be. Crazy. She's like, "Well, I don't know if it's really a policy, but you know, we're just we kind of try to like make sure people talk about things that they are nice and they agree on." It's almost so, like the phrase <laughs> "agree." Yeah, like, I think the, almost as if the phrase <laughs> "agree to disagree," you know, just is posted and nobody talks about anything, right? Yeah, they've all just I mean, it's and I just yeah. thought, what what a total I mean, my college experience was, you know, the typical one where you stay up until three in the morning sure. debating Calvinism or some stupid thing mm -hmm. like that. Right. 
And that's what made it the experience that it's supposed to be. And like, you, you're actively like encouraging people not to do that. And right. you're, you are going to generate this, this hunger for, for something else. Uh, and that, hope that so. I fear can't be generated by colleges, which is bad for me because that's where I work. So, you know. Yeah. <laughs> now, Adam, tell yeah. us where people can find your work and things. Where, where Sorry, can people you find, like, where can people find your writings and your works? Well, um, you know, I have this languishing substack that I started uh, with Tara. With our friend, Tara um, yeah. Yeah, right. Uh, and neither of us have done much with it. I, I wrote a little piece for it. Uh, the most recent piece is when that pandemic amnesty article came out i can't remember when that oh, was gotcha. i don't know if you saw that somebody okay. you know asking oh, for man. kind of a truce like oh hey we were wrong but you know my bad so yeah. i that's the last thing i wrote yeah my bad and then front um, porch republic so i i and at french port front, front porch republic definitely um i mean i have uh wild ambitions and dreams of, of writing a lot more fortunately i have two kids and another one on the way <laughs> so five years old yeah. and two years old so it's uh it doesn't leave too much extra time but um mm -hmm. but maybe you know i i have i have some ideas for the Substack specifically i started it during covid and most of what i wrote on there was uh you know kind of about a a theme i paul kingsnorth i think and not only him but he said something that really kind of captured the, the core of my view of what happened during the pandemic, which is, you know, there's all kinds of aspects to it. There's the corporate profiteering and so on. But I think fundamentally it's a spiritual problem. There's a spiritual problem yeah. that made itself clear during mm -hmm. the pandemic. And that's what I've been trying to think more about. And that's what I have tried to use the Substack to think about. The Substack is called the new pandemonium. So yeah, we, if yeah. I ever get to adding some more to it, we'll link to it. We then, can link uh, it on the that's comment too. But also, I mean, like, and then we'll definitely yeah. go ahead, Mike. But also at FBR. No, that but that uh, that spiritual problem you're talking about. In, I mean, it's metaphysically good and evil, right? I mean, it's not just uh -huh. yeah, uh, like a spiritual malady. You know, it's psychology. It's not that. It's something much bigger. And that's what I've been seeing anyway. Yeah, yeah, that's it's not. No, I, I totally agree. I think that's, you know, you could use the word spiritual in this kind of a, a flighty way, but mm -hmm. I, I'm trying to use it in like the deepest possible sense. Yeah. It goes to the core of what it means to be, you know, a human and choices between good and evil are being presented to us. Right. So very cool. So that's definitely one to, uh, you know, I think not even into the distant, too distant future, because uh, on that substack, you also coined a term, whether it was the title of an article, and I'm speaking of things we'll talk about when we have you back, which I'd really like to do. You wrote um, at a time where, because I, I wasn't even working for the church then, but my wife is a pianist. I was kind of going to, uh, I was the only a guy under 70 who didn't have young kids who was like in the doors of a church during those years. But you, you wrote an article you talked about like on trying to go to church. And we're going to talk about that okay. next time too. Because you gave, you gave me some words to something I couldn't figure out, you know. So uh, Adam Smith, can't say enough about um, the insights you give. You're probably, uh, the clarity of your explanations on these things that uh, I don't think I've said this to you know, other commentators, some are big names or guests we've had, but you're a voice that needs you know, wider distribution. And uh, 
you know, if we're one of the few podcasts you've been on or anything, boy, <laughs> it's uh, it's our good fortune because you say a lot of things really, really well and you're a penetrating thinker. Yeah. Thanks for joining us. So thank you very uh, much. Thanks everybody yeah. for listening to the Regeneration Podcast. We'll see you same place, same time next week.